Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Welcome to the Impact Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer McClure. And today we'll be chatting with Shazio Narali, a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, speaker, and podcast host. I first met Shazia when we were both speaking at a Disrupt HR Calgary event back in 2019, and I've been following her and her work ever since. I find her to be insightful and purposeful, and I really appreciate how she approaches equitable work and workplaces through a lens of possibilities rather than challenges, and a purpose that is rooted in influencing a more just world. As a diversity and inclusion practitioner, Shazia centers equity-deserving people while teaching those in positions of power to use their privilege to advance equity. Outside of her work, she hosts the Equity Gap podcast, and she leans into community, anchoring her energy towards amplifying Black, Indigenous, and women of color to show up in the world and take up all the space that they desire and deserve. She's a proud first-generation Pakistani-Canadian Muslim, a dog mom to a six-pound fluffy rescue dog named Ollie, and a late-in-life diagnosed ADHDer who lives, works, and plays in traditional Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I think you'll enjoy learning from Shazia in our conversation today, and I encourage you to share this podcast with others in your network who may benefit from rethinking some of our traditional approaches to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Well, welcome Shazia to the Impact Makers podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today and learn a a little bit more about the work that you do and who you are. So why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about who you are as a human. And if you want to talk about the work that you do as part of that, I'm happy to hear that as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jennifer. I appreciate the opportunity to engage with you on this platform. I am a diversity and inclusion practitioner based in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I, you know, work in the utilities industry doing this diversity inclusion work, as well as have a little bit of a side hustle that I do some consulting work on the side in the same arena. And I have a podcast that I've been doing for just a little over think close to four years, actually, which is kind of wild when I think back how long it's been. And originally, it started off as a a conversation between one of my former coworkers, who is still a really good friend of mine, um, Susie Ko, and we started the conversation more in the vein of talking about being um, racialized, women of color, navigating corporate environments, and sort of our experiences of feeling really isolated especially when I got into my first leadership position, that was kind of where the biggest catalyst for the dialogue started happening when I recognized I didn't really ever have representation of anyone that looked like me in leadership positions. And over the last couple of years, I've taken the podcast and shifted its direction. I spent a little bit of time focused on what I called unconventional career strategy specifically for Black, Indigenous, and women of color, because I really believe our career paths look a little different just because of different barriers that we have to navigate through in the workplace and in the world. And about six months ago, I did another pivot where I'm now focusing on equity, because I think that equity is a concept that a lot of people don't really fully completely grasp when it comes to how it shows up 
in the workplace and in the world. And so I do a lot of focus on inclusion and equity sort of topics on the podcast, which is now called The Equity Gap. And that takes up a lot of energy and time along with a lot of volunteer work that I do specifically focused around mentorship, training and teaching in the space of um, career development and uh, really enabling and empowering folks coming from marginalized communities to really think about opportunities that are in front of them to sort of navigate through the Canadian workplace context, as well as just, you know, advancing through the things that they want to do in life. And outside of that, I'm a dog mom to a 11-year-old rescue dog named Ollie, who uh, really keeps me on my toes. He looks like very, very young, so everyone always thinks he's a puppy, but he's a senior boy and he, he's very expensive, but I love him with all of my heart. And he takes up a lot of my my extra time and energy outside of that. So that's a little about me. I saw a post on Instagram yesterday where it was one of those meme posts that said, you know, people say that my pets are spoiled and I tell them that they are competitively compensated for the amount of love and affection that they give yes. me or something like that. And I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> Competitive <Yeah>. compensation, <laughs> which is part of the work that you do, obviously. You you mentioned several things in, in that. Uh, of course, I came across you as I do many of the guests on this podcast. It's uh, becoming clear that I find a lot of new voices through diversity. Disrupt HR. And I remember hearing you, you've done more than one Disrupt HR talk, and I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes because they're all wonderful. But uh, we both spoke at one of the Calgary events, and you did speak with your your uh, colleague who you were doing the podcast with at the time. And I still remember your presentation with the slides where you had pictures of all the white men in the HR kind of uh, thought leader world. And the challenge was, you know, both what will it take to make you a thought leader as well as, you know, why are the voices that we're listening to all the same? So I appreciate the work that you're doing. You, as I said, mentioned in, in your intro there, that you kind of started doing work to help advance uh, women of color and that the challenges are different to them kind of navigating their careers. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, obviously from your perspective, what those are, um, you know, how you're helping those women and then maybe what we can do to also help not just women, but, you know, people of color in, in general in their career journey. Absolutely. And I, I think it's also important to kind of preface all of it in the context of um, sort of the historical context of even within Canada. I know the U.S., there are obviously differences in the way that things show up in terms of history and how that sort of seeps into people's experiences in day to day. In Canada, I find that the sort of underlining undercurrent of um, racism and othering of people of color and in particularly in Canada as well, Indigenous people and it it just shows up a little differently in that it's a little more polite, I always say. Uh, and lately after COVID, it, it's been a little louder than that because I think there's been a bit of a divide that's happened. But I always talk to leaders about the fact that there is this emotional tax that a lot of um, Black and Indigenous and people of color carry when they walk into the workplace. It's like you can't separate your identity and the things that you experience in your navigation of the day-to-day -day world 
from walking into the workplace. And so it's really imperative for leaders and HR practitioners and anyone that's in a position of influence around workplace cultures to understand that and really start to think about how do we create workplaces that are really, really safe for people with marginalized identities. So that could be anything from someone's race and ethnic identity to neurodiversity and disability to um, sexuality or gender identity. There's just a gamut of, of things there. And I think a lot about um, circumstances that have happened um, throughout, obviously 2020 was when everything was amplified and a lot of organizations got really quick to respond in a way that felt quite performative. And it was felt that way by a lot of specifically Black folks um, that I've spoken to that live in the U.S. as well as here in Canada. And it's just about recognition that these things were happening for a really long time and they just weren't as front and center in terms of the news, in terms of what was available for people to pay attention to. And so a lot of people are walking around really hyper aware of their differences, of, you know, feeling on guard and feeling othered on a regular basis. And that shows up so much in the workplace because people don't suddenly shut off their biases when they walk into work. We like to assume the best of leaders and of, you know, humans in their positions of authority, but we have to challenge that to the place where we got to get a little bit uncomfortable and talk about the ways in which, you know, a lot of times people have been raised in a certain kind of capacity where news media and pop culture and all of these different influences might interfere with the ways in which they they look at some of us and they look at decision making and a lot of that shows up in the workplace in terms of representation there's a lack of that when you get up to typically the c-suite of organizations you're not seeing a lot of very visible diversity there's a lot of leaning on diversity of thought which i really hate because it feels like such a cop-out for a lot of organizations to sort of say well these folks may look you know the same in terms of demographic characteristics and all of these things, but there's such diversity of thought here. And it's like, that's not enough to actually bring you the depth of insight and lived experience that someone can bring when they um, come from a different background. And so it's just imperative for us to think about how do we create these workplaces that are safe, that have representation, that solution based on equity, knowing that not everybody needs a one-size-fits-all approach in terms of the solutions that we think about when it comes to leadership development. There is a lot of conversations that I'm having as well around things like sponsorship being so much more important um, for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to really be seen instead of things that are traditional around mentorship, which typically look at trying to fix things about us that don't fit within the norms of kind of the white supremacy cultures that a lot of our corporate environments are built on. So you think about that emotional tax, we carry it when we walk into the workplace, we can't shut off our experiences, our identity. There's folks that sometimes have to mask and cover up their true identity. How do we create really safe workplaces for Black, Indigenous and people of color in particular, which is my area of focus? And really think about that equity solutioning when it comes to developing folks um, from a leadership development perspective, career development, thinking about representation and how that shows up. And so with my podcast and the stuff that I do in the mentorship space, it is all about the empowerment focus. It's like, how do I teach 
specifically Black, Indigenous, and women of color about the barriers that they're up against? And how do you navigate that in a way that feels really authentic to you without feeling like you're really selling out to sort of fit into the norms of what's expected of you in those in those environments? I love the concept. Um, you would think as long as I've been in the people space and and being a person who does want to learn and tries to listen to people from all different perspectives, the concept of sponsorship versus mentorship. I'm sure I've heard of it in the past and maybe, you know, kind of thought I understood what it was, but actually it was a Disrupt HR talk um, from someone I believe in Toronto many years ago when Disrupt HR talk first started, where her talk was about the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. And I really, it helped me to get what that mean. And then more recently, and I'll try to find a link to it and, and add it to the show notes, a great podcast interview with Adam Grant on his Rethinking podcast with Carla Harris, who's a, a very powerful Black woman executive on Wall Street, who is just an amazing uh, speaker. She has a great book at that. Now I follow her online, but she was very blunt about, you know, the importance of sponsorship and both how that has helped her in her career and how we need to do more of it. So maybe can you share again from your perspective, kind of what the differences are between sponsorship and mentorship for people like me who maybe aren't as familiar with that concept as I was before I heard the Disrupt HR talk and why we need need to make the effort to be more intentional about pouring into the lives of others versus uh, just a lunch conversation. And let me tell you about my experience. Mm -hmm. Such a great question. I think about a lot of the environments that I've been a part of, uh, and even in the lens of, of D&I that I've been um, influencing for the last couple of years, it is just really difficult to start to challenge people from that paradigm shift perspective around rethinking what it is that we are doing in terms of the skills and the sort of desire that we have for what does a great leader look like? How do they behave? And separating that a little bit from the bias that we all naturally have baked in around these cultures that are typically designed off of qualities and features of white, cisgender, able-bodied men. And so it's sort of starting to challenge that a little bit, because typically what happens in mentorship models and experiences, they are designed around, let me teach you how I did it so you can do the exact same thing. Let me teach you so that I can fix you to help you fit into this model and this culture that we've built in this organization. And very few people are really challenging that to say, why is it about fixing people? Why isn't it about allowing them to shine in their authentic expression in whatever that happens to look like and really starting to shift the narrative that we have that it has to be this one size fits all approach that you need to have executive presence or you need to sort of show up in such a way that you can network and you know go golfing and go and connect in a certain kind of a way and sponsorship really sort of turns that on its head a little bit because it is about me as an executive seeing you and saying this particular person has such a bright talent and I need to amplify that. And I have access to all of these spaces and these rooms of influence. And I'm going to speak that person's name in those rooms to ensure that they have visibility. I'm not trying to fix them. I'm not trying to tell them that their path needs to look like mine did. I want to be able to create space for them to be able to show up as authentically as they are and to be able to discover what does that look like for themselves, but I'm going to amplify their talents and their voices. And I'm going to make sure that people know who they are. 
And it's about using circles of influence and opportunity and spaces where a lot of these executive leaders or even leaders in general might be to amplify the voices, the talents, the abilities of people that typically don't get access. And a lot of that comes back down to a lot of times Black, Indigenous and people of color, we just don't have access to the same circles of influence. And that's typically because we don't look like everybody else. And that is a barrier in and of itself. A lot of times leaders will hire in their own likeness and not even realize that they're doing that. And that there is sometimes a barrier that they're not even recognizing. And they end up with this really homogeneous team that they're buddies. They like to go for drinks together and they like to socialize But what happens when you throw in someone into that mix that might be a little bit different, all of a sudden there's a feeling of of separation of otherness and there's a barrier there. And sometimes that is in our heads to some extent because we've kind of navigated the world feeling different. But other times it is the reality of the fact that workplaces aren't catching up to recognize that there are differences in the access that we have and how do we tap into the network circles of influence and the opportunities that a lot of these leaders have to amplify versus try to fix, to help someone fit in the mold of culture fit, you know, and those leadership models that are really designed off of um, qualities typically of of white male leadership. Mm -hmm. I just think there's so much work still to do. Um, I'm sure you agree with particularly white people, uh, understanding the systemic effects of racism and where that has us today. I just was, again, listening to another podcast recently about some of the activities that are going on in the United States, where now that we've had a pretty impactful decision from the Supreme Court around affirmative action in educational institutions that several attorney state attorney generals have sued the state's about also applying that in the business context. And the language was read from from the suit on the podcast around the idea that everyone should be treated as equal and we should return to everyone being considered on the merits of their contribution, which all sounds great, but it takes out the reality of the systemic effects on people who have not have been marginalized. You know, in Canada, again, a lot of the focus on Indigenous people as well. And I love seeing a lot of our Canadian cities typically do have either an Indigenous speaker at their Disrupt HR events or uh, at least someone talking about that topic. Same, I'm seeing that in Australia as well. So I know some people are really trying to do the work, but there's still so much work to be done because when you talk to someone who has privilege of even if that's just the color of their skin, but they want to talk about how poor they were growing up and they had to do it all themselves. But yet the hurdles were lower for them just because of the systemic nature of the systems that are in place by the people who put them in place. Again, maybe not intentionally over time, uh, maybe intentionally over time in some cases or with some situations, but We just have to do a lot more. And I'm so glad for the work that you're doing to help us all understand that we all want to be considered on the the merits that we bring to the table and our abilities, et cetera. But if we haven't had the ability, as you've mentioned, to be in the room, to hear some of those conversations, we're at a disadvantage or some people are at more of a disadvantage than others. And so it's our job and our responsibility to help lift them up and to bring them forward. And that's why, again, I love the idea of sponsorship. How about, I I love again, that you're focused on equity because 
having again been in the space for a while, we we started with diversity, then we I think added inclusion, and then I if I'm not mistaken, we went back and added equity, DE and I, and then we've started talking more and more about belonging. I heard a new one to me recently about accessibility. So we've got DEIBA. I think I get what diversity, inclusion, belonging, and, and accessibility mean. The one that I probably can really understand more deeply is equity, because it's easy to think about, oh, it's just paying people the same. But it's so, so much more than that, right? So tell us what your version of equity is, um, which I'm sure is much more informed than mine, and how you're working with both companies and individuals and leaders to advance that concept. Yeah, it's um, the question that I think a lot of people kind of grapple with a little bit as well, because of course, it it always comes back down to pay equity. And there's sometimes a resting on our laurels a little bit when we when we sort of say maybe that's covered or we're perhaps in a unionized environment where that is all made a little bit more equal. But there is a consideration around different things that we think about when it comes to even small things that you can influence within your workplace around how holidays are, for instance, um, if you have a, a large contingent of team members that may not necessarily practice, um, you know, Christian or Catholic holidays, a lot of the ones that are automatically given in Canada, and I assume a lot similar in the States around Easter and Christmas, those are all things that maybe a lot of your Muslim and Hindu and Jewish colleagues may not actually celebrate. And so considering ways in which you can redistribute holidays, give people the opportunity to swap days um, without having to use vacation time to be able to go and celebrate Eid with their family or Hanukkah with their family in some capacity, where it's just an automatic given that everybody just takes Christmas off or whatever that might be for, for individual organizations. So it can start with things that are really small like that, just rethinking the ways in which we've kind of designed our workplace cultures from the lens of what has been the majority. And I even think about it in the context of unions. And unions are really an interesting place to kind of hone in on because unions obviously have had their start in social justice movements. And their focus has, of course, been around equalizing the playing ground for everybody. And they play a really, really important role in conversations around equity. But a lot of times, what unions fight for is typically what you're going to have like a larger majority of your organization desiring. And so when you think about parental leave and things like that, that's because you have a, a large chunk of your organization of employees that desire to have more flexibility around parental leave and whatever that might look like. But it doesn't necessarily hone in on the experiences of your Black and Indigenous and people of color or people with disabilities. There's this whole conversation as well around returning to the office. And for so many folks, returning to the office can be really, really detrimental for them. And they've been masking for a really, really long time to try to make it work, to keep themselves well-employed. For a lot of folks with disabilities, um, remote work opened up a huge opportunity for them to be more gainfully employed because there wasn't the requirement to have to go into a physical office space and deal with all of the barriers in order to get there. And a lot of times organizations aren't designing policies. They're not designing benefits programs. Unions are not necessarily advocating for the needs of the marginalized. They're advocating typically for when they have a little bit of more of a mass interest in something. And so especially around the remote work conversation, 
It's how do we not put a bunch of barriers in place for people to have to prove certain things around accommodations and needs for uh, requirements to work from home. I myself was diagnosed with ADHD last November and I'm in my 40s and lived my whole life feeling really, really different and having no idea that this was the reason why. And for me, I actually really thrive being in a workplace um, office environment because I am the type of person who likes to work in a coffee shop because I like the white noise in the background. But for other folks with ADHD or neurodiversity, being in the office is really, really difficult for them in terms of socialization or feeling like they can actually focus and concentrate. And a lot of times the conversations when it comes to accommodations, the burden is put on the employee to come up with all of this evidence to prove that they require these things. And sometimes the medical system isn't even caught up to individual needs. I think about even situations with ADHD there's a resurgence of a number of women that are coming forward with being diagnosed because for so long, nobody actually researched women in ADHD. It was typically a, a young boy's problem that was diagnosed when um, you know, young men were dealing with concentration issues in, in school places and things like that. And so you're seeing this sort of lack of things being caught up and a lot of the burden is being put on employees to have to you know, prove that they require these needs or these accommodations. And a lot of these policies aren't built from the perspective that a one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't work for everybody. And you think about working mothers. I don't have that experience, but I have a lot of friends who navigate that. And the lack of flexibility in workplaces and not necessarily giving that capacity for folks who are working parents to maybe go and pick up their kids and then finish off their day a little bit later in the evening. Um, no desire to really look at results-focused work environments, which have proven to be really, really successful if you're very intentional about the ways in which you build culture. Those are all like equity-based solutions. It's that one-size-fits-all approach to policy, to benefits, to employee experiences need to kind of be thrown out the window when it comes to how we design these things, because from an equity lens, you're looking at the individual needs of that particular population. And you're saying, what do we need to do to design this in order to ensure that these folks can really contribute to their best of their ability and that they can really, really thrive? And I don't know exactly what the ROI is in terms of um, what the research says, but I can only imagine that it shows that there's a lot more retention and loyalty productivity because you're giving people the freedom to be an adult and to determine what works for them, or you're meeting them where they need to be met in order to really thrive in the workplace. So it shows up in a lot of different arenas um, that just scratches the surface, but hopefully is a little bit um, easy for folks to, to grasp as a concept because it can get a lot more convoluted when you take into different considerations around things like historical um, historical intergenerational trauma and how that shows up for people and where's the responsibility for the workplace to sort of meet folks where they're at. There are different ways that we can do that through benefits programs, wellness programs, different things like that, even looking at onboarding programs or how you recruit. There's so many possibilities. I could go on forever, but oh, I love it. I'll leave framing, it there. framing it as possibilities versus challenges is a great way to, to think about it. I mentioned in your bio that I shared before we started our conversation that you're a person who stays grounded in the possibilities. I love that. Tell me what that means for you in your work and in your life. 
I sort of say it as a fancier way of saying that I'm just a real optimist at heart. I do genuinely believe that people have good intentions when it comes to this work. And a lot of times it is about giving them a sort of pathway to see what's available in front of them and what's possible. And I think about the possibilities being such a grounding space for me in the work that I do, especially in the specific mentorship and engagement with um, young Black, Indigenous and women of color. I, I spend a lot of energy in that space because I think about young people having a little bit more available to them in terms of not feeling as jaded or not feeling like they've been so beat down by the world that there's a lot more available in terms of the way that they can think about the world. And so I use that a lot in terms of my ability and focus to really think about the empowerment lens. But really, it's just another way of saying that I'm an optimist at heart, because I do think that like you said, when you frame things in a possibilities lens, it sort of removes some of the immediate people putting their backs up against the wall around, well, this isn't really doable here. This is not how we've ever done it here. It's like, what about if we think about it in this way and reframing what's available? Because a lot of times, especially with diversity and inclusion work, it can feel like you're fixing a lot of problems versus actually thinking about what can you do to consider what can make this place really safe and a real haven for people to thrive at work and to do their best work because they truly believe that people deserve to have access to meaningful work. And if that's the case, I think a lot of things in the world would be solved for because there's a true correlation, right? Between your happiness at work and how much that trickles into other parts of your life. So you spend so much time in the workplace and if you think about opportunities that are built on meaningful access and the possibilities of equitable work, then it's really exciting for what people could possibly do. And it's decisions that are based on their own desires versus other people's or society's expectations of what they should be doing. I love that framing. I'm going to try to take that into to my, I think I'm generally positive, but I, I love thinking about possibilities rather than, as you said, fixing things, particularly when it comes to DE&I. So your podcast, people listening to this are obviously podcast listeners, so maybe they'll want to check out The Equity Gap as well. So tell us a little bit about what you cover or kind of the conversations that you're having on your podcast and uh, what you'd like for people to take away from that, why you're doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, I have found very few spaces in my life and my time in diversity and inclusion and in HR for the last 10 plus years that are really focused on centering the experiences of marginalized people. And specifically on the equity gap, I take a lot of my own experiences as a woman of color, child of immigrants, kind of navigating life from that lens. And, you know, as an HR practitioner, as well as a DNI practitioner, I sort of use those perspectives to infuse a sort of teaching lens on the podcast around how do you break down concepts like allyship in a way that is really accessible. And has a lot of straight talk on there too. I don't really mince words when it comes to my opinions and perspectives around what's really going to be needed to advance this work from a place of very meaningful progress. I just had a conversation yesterday with someone who I consider to be like a mentor of mine who I've worked with in a volunteer in a work capacity for the past three or four years, Dr. Gulnaz Gulnaragi. She's the founder of a mentorship program that I'm really actively involved with called Accelerate Her Future. 
And we talked about a walrus talk that she did on saviorism in the workplace, which was really focused around the conversations with respect to sponsorship and mentorship and her life experience around building something that she wanted for herself. And so she's built this mentorship program called Accelerate Her Future that is really focused on supporting specifically young women that identify as Black, Indigenous, and women of color. And the program is designed, you know, for us, by us. And it's quite a beautiful experience that I've been really privileged to be a part of for the last number of years. And so she was on the podcast and I just posted that episode last night. Um, and it's a great conversation. And so a lot of the dialogue is real straight talk around equity, around inclusion. I talk about allyship. I did an episode on one of the Disrupt HR talks that I did recently on the reference man, which is this kind of one size fits all approach that the world has taken for everything from healthcare research to the preferences of air conditioning in your office spaces being based off of a, I think it's like a 20 something straight, able-bodied white male. And so it's a lot of concepts that I think I take time to break them down in a way that it connects the dots around how equity shows up in the workplace, but also, you know, in the world. And so there's a teaching element to it, uh, breaking down kind of concepts that might feel a little bit overwhelming and scary for folks and sort of talking really real straight talk lens, but also really centering specifically the experiences of Black, Indigenous, and women of color in the solutioning lens and around how we rethink some of these conversations around equity. So a little bit of everything, but very much focused on debunking equity and really thinking about how some of those things show up in the workplace and beyond. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll definitely link to that episode, to that conversation um, and love the Accelerate Her Future concept and idea. And now that I think about it, I remember I, I was, I've made a commitment to kind of start watching Disrupt HR Talks again, because there's so many of them out there. And I know some very good ones. And yours was one of the first ones I watched this year when I kind of recommitted the reference me and, and, and I shared it. And I said, this to me is exactly what a Disrupt HR talk should be. It's well thought out, but it's taking a concept. We have if there's 6,000 plus Disrupt HR talks out there, you know, people will often ask me, well, what makes for a good talk? And I'll say, well, here's an example. Of those 6,000 talks, we probably have seven or 800 that are on the topic of diversity, maybe more than that. Of those seven or 800, probably 650 of them are, uh, the concept is diversity is the right thing to do, so do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Versus, I think your, your talk really, as you said, kind of framed, and help me to think differently about what, you know, the reference man, even as you said, with the air temperature in, in offices, how, what, like what we talked about earlier in the conversation, the things that I don't recognize because of who I am and how I grew up and the, the privileges and access that I had, that people of color do not. Um, so I definitely encourage people to click on the show notes and, and watch that one. It's a great one. And I, I love you for sharing that message and continuing to support Disrupt HR. Well, let's kind of close out here. You've, you've shared so much good information. And again, I hope people will, will follow you and learn from you that don't already. What do you wish HR practitioners and leaders knew about advancing, advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Help us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an easy sort of solution in the sense that it really requires, I think, a paradigm shift around 
how traditional HR and um, those practices that are so, so meaningfully linked to diversity and inclusion work, um, how those have been designed. A lot of them have been designed from that one size fits all approach. There's obviously a legal lens on everything that we do in HR um, from a perspective of liability, and it needs to be shifted and shaken up to really start to center the experiences of your employees, to start to center, especially the experiences of your marginalized employees and really listen and advocate from a perspective of the possible and not around the perspective of what we can't do, which is often what I encounter quite a lot in you know various workplaces where I'm at now. It's quite amazing to sort of see how people really embrace the work uh, from the possibilities around even thinking about our benefits programs and how we consider the different needs of our employees that end up maybe costing us a little bit more as an organization, but that really ensures that we position ourselves as an employer that is really walking the walk when it comes to some of these things. But it does require a real shift in what we're doing. And that makes people really, really uncomfortable because it is challenging the ways in which we've always thought about some of these traditional concepts like leadership development, for instance, is like a really, really big one for me because Again, it's often no one is sitting in the room challenging whether these models have been designed on this idea of who we think about as great leaders that typically don't see a lot of you know diverse voices in there. And sometimes it is about seeing those diverse voices and recognizing that those people are just assimilating to try to fit into the model that we've created. And so how do we start to think about what does leadership development look like when we remove the concepts of fit and advancing in a way that is really baked in these old concepts that are truly, at the end of the day, baked in, in white supremacist culture. And it's not pointing out individuals, it's pointing out a system that we've all been accustomed to for so, so long that is blowing up in our faces in a lot of ways too. And you think about the war on talent and this desire for folks to bring people back into the office and how much that's going to shift the narrative around what HR professionals are going to be required to do in order to really start to advance the needs of employees so that they have people that want to work for their organizations. And a lot of that just requires a shift in how we think about, are we solutioning from the same ways that we've always done it? Or is there another way to look at this that actually centers these experiences that we've never thought about? And I always think about this example of when streets and cities are designed with people with disabilities in mind, it often actually lifts everybody up in terms of becomes more accessible for everybody. You think about sidewalks having access ways, and those are really good for parents taking their kids in strollers and you know, the doors that have the automatic opening, those are often great in situations when you don't have the ability to, to use your hands to open a door, if you're carrying things, whatever that might be. And so often when we're designing for the most marginalized, you actually end up benefiting everybody in different ways. I mean, you do not even realize it. And so trying to get folks to think through that around how do we center those experiences and then start to build from that lens versus the way we've always done it is probably the only thing that's going to start to shift the approach that we've taken and start to see meaningful progress when we'll move beyond performative to actually feeling like we're doing some meaningful change in organizational contexts around this work. And then you'll see people 
flocking to your organization and thriving there and staying loyal because they feel really seen and protected and that especially as businesses, there's so much opportunity for businesses to be catalysts for change in politics and in the world. And a lot of times it is about using a business's power, purchasing power and presence and capacity to be able to say, this doesn't work for us. And we're going to do it this way because we want to be able to be a pillar of change because businesses are microcosm of society and they're not separate from society. So organizations need to step up in different ways. And HR professionals, I think, need to start thinking about the possibilities from the lens of equity and and building for your most marginalized people first uh, to start to shift the way things have always been done. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, where can people follow you, learn from you, uh, understand more about this work and, and what you're doing to advance that in the world? How can we find you and connect with you? Yeah, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm really easy to find because I'm the only Shazia Nirali on there. Uh, as long as folks remember the two H's in my name, it's S-H-A-H-Z-I-A and that's people always forget that. So connect with me on there. Uh, the Equity Gap is available on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I intentionally took it off Spotify uh, a couple years ago after the whole Joe Rogan drama. I just felt from an ethical perspective, it didn't feel um, aligned, but you can find it on Apple and probably any other podcast player that it sort of gets picked up by. My website is shazianarali.com. I have a lot of um, my blog posts on there and a lot of original kind of content, as well as some insight on how to connect with me uh, in terms of the work that I do. And then you can find the equity gap on uh, Instagram. And um, I'm also on Instagram, pretty active on there as well, but you'll probably only want to be interested in that if you want to see pictures of my dog. So um, I'm sure yeah, you'll link everything in the notes and then because um, I can't think of every handle off the top of my head, but all of those places I'm pretty active on. We will definitely put the links in there where we can find out more about you and your work as well as Ollie. So thank you again for joining me today, Shazia. I look forward to continuing to learn from you about the possibilities in the future. Thanks, Jennifer. I appreciate it. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.